Welcome to the Data Center Fishbowl Podcast. Here we take an irreverent look at the data center landscape so you don't have to. We'll have interviews with thought leaders as well as people who are just getting started. This episode is brought to you by Agile Data Sites. If you're looking for a cloud, co-location, or network provider with a full suite of data center options, Agile has you covered. With data centers in Princeton, New Jersey, Allentown, Pennsylvania, Agile can provide geographically diverse disaster recovery options. The new data center vaults provide ultra-high security private access suites. For more information, visit agiledatasites.com. On today's episode, we are talking about content. Now, that is an ambiguous, ugly word that means next to nothing in today's strange media climate where just about everything is content. Uh, Content almost seems to be defined as just bits and bytes flowing through pipes. And uh, I want to deconstruct that a little bit today just to make sure that we understand that (laughs) maybe that is it. Maybe in today's landscape when people talk about content, uh, all they're really talking about is the actual data. It almost doesn't seem to matter anymore as long as people can put advertising on top of something for that to be considered content. Now, let's think of the the biggest examples of content. The the old school internet started with web pages, which turned into some kind of news feed. So you think back to the days of Lycos and, uh, you know, even news groups. That was content. It was some sort of feed of text, usually, that had some sort of informational importance. Since then, we have grown into uh, mostly cat videos. There are now more content providers, probably in some ways, than there are people. Uh, I would say in the United States, we have somewhere around, you know, 270 million content producers. Every single person who is on Instagram is a content producer. Every single person who is on Facebook is a content producer. And there are companies selling advertisements against those those people's content. Now, if we start thinking about the big, quote-unquote, content producers, you can think of the, the simplest one would be YouTube, which, again, is a, is a network of content production, but also the newspapers of the world, the news agencies of the world, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, ABC, NBC, CBS, Comedy Central. You know, that's video content. And at this point in the age of the internet, video content is king of network traffic. There are estimates that about 90% of internet traffic is simply video. And that is likely to stay, remain the case because... Streaming video, especially, is very bandwidth rich. It takes a good amount of bandwidth to stream that content. And the nice thing about the way that content is distributed now is that if you think about it, in the old days of the internet, back in the Lycos days, there was one server that was sitting in a data center somewhere that hosted that content. And anybody who wanted to access that server had to dial in to that specific data center often through a regular telephone landline, and they would actually often dial into the specific IP address of that server. Now, since then, of course, things have changed, but the problem with that original model is that it meant that all of the information for that server traversed the entire network path to get to the person who's accessing it. So 
you imagine, you know, there's several uh, point of presence points between that access and the data itself. You know, it has to go through phone lines and then it has to uh, eventually get to that uh, point. So that's actually a lot of network to travel. And you can imagine that at that scale of only a few websites out there in the world, that's fine. There's no real problem with traversing the entire internet if the, the amount of data is measured in uh, kilobits per hour, you know. <laughs> but at this point, that becomes untenable because there is so much access to information and so much requirement to spread out that information that that content can't just stay in a centralized location to be accessed for the entire world. Uh, it, it has to be distributed somehow for the network that we currently have to function. Uh, you know, you can imagine that um, all of the node points on the web of the internet uh, have traffic flowing between them. You can uh, the easiest thought experiment would be like a spider web. So. Every one of the content reducers, you can imagine, is the center of that spider web. But at each of the points where two webs cross, that's another possible intersection of data. And you can keep forecasting that out to see that if you're spreading to the edges, to the places, the edges of the spider web where people are actually accessing the data, that's a lot of possible paths to go down. And it's a lot of uh, possible problems that will run up and it's also a lot of places where two different streams of data will collide at that point and two different streams of data will traverse the same line so if I'm on the edge and I'm trying to get to the center that's an awful lot of distance to cover and each one of each time that data traverses that distance there's a cost to it it's a minuscule almost infinitesimal cost, but uh, whether it's photons or electrons that are traversing that network, there's still switching costs, there's still uh, some amount of electricity that is required in order to do that. And if you multiply that by billions or trillions of transactions, sometimes every second, then suddenly those are real dollars. So what do we do? In order to get that content out, we, instead of uh, going from the center out, the center of that spider web out, we send some of that information from the center out to a nodal point, and then we distribute from the nodal point to the end user. And, and that's the basic idea of edge caching, that instead of the information traversing the entire internet between the two sites, between the originating server and the person who wants it, uh, high volume data gets moved to that quote unquote edge, so that, uh, you know, the edge of the spider web, the outside circle. And then that edge distributes to the people near it. And in total, that can greatly reduce the amount of internet traffic over the entire network. And the funny thing about it is you think of that as something that's a problem for Facebook or, you know, the, the larger players, Hulu, Netflix, the, the major content providers. But in reality, every website that's visited by a large number of people has this problem. Because it doesn't matter the type of data, it just matters 
the volume of data. So even if it's only a few kilobytes that's being sent at any given time, if millions of people are touching on that data, that becomes a major piece of the distribution pipeline. And the more you think about it, the more you think, well, maybe we have a lot of these points. Maybe we get that edge so close to the customers that it's right at their doorstep, which is a great idea, but there's a lot of infrastructure that has to go around even the smallest edge point. You know, you'd still have to have the high quality internet connectivity. You'd still have to have high quality power source because in general you don't want a server to lose power especially a file system server because it has to restart and it'll take a long time and the most likely outcome or the most likely time that something is going to go wrong is during a restart so in general you want to keep those file system servers up and running as much as you can and that becomes a real major issue <laughs> Uh, because even if you can fail away, like if you can turn that node on the network off and not and, and switch over automatically to another node, you still have this problem of not necessarily being able to restart that node in a timely manner. And let's say a bunch of the nodes go down uh, because there's a regional power outage. That means everybody in that region, even the people who might have power, uh, still can't get to the information they want. And that includes first responders, that includes all kinds of people who would probably need that information. And it could bog down the upstream network by increasing traffic on the nodes above, the nodes that are closer to that center point. So there's some sort of balance between the edge, as we think of it, the getting closest as possible to the user, and the size requirements for a working data center. Now there are companies that have figured this out pretty well. Um, there are, you know, I'll, I'll take one of the larger content distribution networks, Akamai. Um, they've partnered with some data centers to build out smaller data centers that are closer to the edge. Uh, generally one meg or below, one megawatt I should say. <laughs> so meg, it, everything's called a meg these days. Uh, or a gig or, you know, gigawatt, megawatt, mega, megabyte, gigabyte, megabit. I digress. <laughs> but uh, there are about one megawatt per data center. Uh, the company that most recently has, has done that kind of work is called EdgeConnects. And they have a, a template that they use for these data centers. And they can build it out very rapidly because uh, it's built to order it. And all they need to know is the basic footprint of the data center or of, of the building that they're going in and whether or not it has around 2 mega power available and they can plop in that edge data center that is custom made for edge caching and people like Akamai so that they have a very low bar of entry to get into that edge space in that particular place so you think you know if you go out into a not especially populous area, uh, say Butte, Montana, or uh, you know another city that is not what you would call a large population center, but still has a population that would be well served by having content close to them. You can you can put a data center there and save on the total amount of internet traffic 
in the entire region and actually upstream and downstream. Uh, that's, that's one form of getting content where it needs to go. Another form is to actually generate the content closer to the edge, which actually is not just storing that content. For instance, you know, having a video from Netflix and storing it near the edge. It's actually having computation that somebody accesses. For instance, a cloud application, something that maybe is accessed from a cell phone or tablet that is very thin client, so, so there's not very much of a program on the laptop or, or tablet or phone itself. All that computation is done in a server that's sitting in a data center. That type of situation lends itself to edge computing. So we would actually have servers that are close to the customer. And the reason that that's so important isn't so much to reduce internet traffic, it's to reduce the latency. So every time you move them, you, every time you move your mouse, there's some amount of delay before it actually does an operation. That's true on your computer. That's true anytime that you're seeing something that is on a server someplace. There's some sort of a delay between them, and uh, there are delays that you notice and get annoyed by, and there's delays that you don't really care about. So somewhere around 30 milliseconds, people don't seem to mind. Uh, you barely even notice it. You can, you know, your your brain doesn't really pick it up as a delay. Uh, but you think of every every mile of fiber, every meter of fiber, introduces some sort of delay into the equation, and also the switching in, in between introduces some sort of a delay. And every muxponder, every every piece along that pipeline. So the question is, how do you reduce that delay and the answer is really to get it as close as possible to the user uh, the the best you know the, if you put the compute node close to the user then then you have taken so many steps out of the equation that it makes it that much better and that's a growing trend you know it, the, it's for a number of cloud-based applications they're not running on your phone or on your computer they're running on a server someplace and you're basically just seeing the video output of that server and that's actually a very very high quality method and it reduces the the total traffic and reduces the it expands the possibility of your ability to do work on any device so let's say you're doing work you're doing work and your phone dies you can just pick up your laptop where you left off and you won't have lost any work. You can be working on your laptop and then you want to get on a plane and you really only want to have your tablet with you. You know, you, it's seamless. Um, that's one of the up and coming and, and actually already here uh, types of computational load that we're doing. But it gets very frustrating as you introduce that latency. So those are those are the two basic prongs of content distribution. There's caching the content close to the user, and then there's basically creating the content close to the user. And they're both going to be very important moving on as the edge device becomes less important, but the uh, computation at the cloud point becomes more important. Okay, let's take a another break and we'll be back in a second. This episode is sponsored by Greenlane Design. 
GreenLane is a one-stop turnkey data center design company focusing on high efficiency and green technology. They've designed, built, and or commissioned dozens of high-reliability data centers starting from the bottom up. For more information, go to GreenLaneDesign.com. News. Okay, so apparently I'm reading in data center knowledge that AWS, Amazon Web Services, has gone into the managed services business. So, whereas uh, for, for a good long time, uh, there have been relatively large and small, varied uh, managed services providers out there. They can provide all kinds of services like hosting or on-demand outsourcing, moving workloads from one system to another, cloud computing, all, all, whatever a MSP does. Amazon is getting into that same business. So instead of just doing that cloud game, they're trying to take over even more of the market. For now, I think they're just trying to go after the big guys, uh, very large enterprise clients, which makes sense. That's where the money is, and that's where you can kind of iron out the kinks because they might have a partnership and they'll work together and, and try to figure out the economies of scale for this and also probably get the most money. The question is, whether or not the rest of the industry is going to go that way. If just like cloud adoption, which really has gone to AWS in a big way, they've become a huge market player in all of IT because of AWS, whether the smaller scale managed services are going to fit into that. And it's a really good question, and it could be, I hate the term, but it could be disruptive uh, in a really big way. Because with the cloud computing muscle that Amazon has, with the partnerships they can leverage, they could take over more and more market share. And the general industry trend could be towards consolidation, as opposed to uh, a lot of the MSPs that are out there are actually fairly small. There are a lot of players that have their own knock someplace, they have their field techs, they have their business sectors that they work in, and they may be a 50-person shop that is able to provide a lot of services. And the way they do that a lot of the time is by leveraging their partnerships. So where somebody might be asking for VoIP, uh, what the MSPs do is they sell the VoIP service and maybe white label it or maybe do it under a contractual arrangement where you know some other service provider is providing it but they manage it that is it's been a business model for a good long time and I think in the marketplace there have been a lot of strategic partnerships among fairly small players to provide those kinds of managed services and that's been a a market trend for a number of years and by someone like Amazon getting into that managed service game it fundamentally shifts the balance of that equation maybe in a good way maybe it makes sense for all of that many or many of those managed services to go into the cloud into the public cloud um, but it also could introduce certain possible threat vectors, 
having everything in one basket is great in terms of just having one contract to write, but if that one provider gets hacked, which you know the the company with the biggest target on its back right now really is Amazon. They are a constant target of hacks because it would be an enormous gold mine, probably the biggest gold mine in history, if you were able to circumvent all of the security protections within AWS um, and get into each individual network because who knows what is inside each one of those clouds you know <laughs> it, it, it it's it's actually a, a an understandably frightening uh, idea to think that everybody is putting their eggs into that one AWS basket it, it makes sense for I think a lot of companies to actually take a hybrid approach and put some workloads into AWS or Azure and spin up private clouds that that are managed uh, either by smaller MSPs or managed in-house it, it frees them up to have some sort of failover and some sort of diversity in their platforms in their service levels in their disaster recovery options it, it really does free them up to not be quite so concerned about a single hack. I say that, but in this day and age, so many, in, with software-defined networks and with uh, the consolidation of networking and security infrastructure, it's still possible for one hack to traverse multiple platforms. And by that I mean if multiple systems are secured by, let's say, uh, Active Directory, hacking Active Directory gets access to all those systems. I'm not saying that AD is, is in any danger of getting hacked, but my point is that things are so in interconnected just getting access to the email may uh, have a password reset uh, that somebody hasn't changed their password after a password reset and then the hackers can get into um, the administrative systems and eventually get even deeper than that so by using those administrative systems creating a um, all-access username and slowly but surely drilling down deeper and deeper and deeper into the network. That's all very real, very possible, very unlikely, but it's unlikely on a global scale, but it happens, and it happens a lot, uh, especially with, you know, a diverse set of companies. There, there are so many companies out there that all need to guard against all of these attacks and most of those companies don't have the resources to adequately safeguard. Let's think of Sony. Let's think of Target. These are big companies. These are the big boys. They should know better. 
but they don't because it's incredibly difficult. So in my own personal experience, uh, the the target hack was probably undertaken by someone who got access to the network as a HVAC contractor. And I will say from my personal experience that uh, those usernames, those access codes, um, they have incredible, incredible latitude when coming on site or getting into the system. They have incredible latitude to make changes to get backdoor access. And, or they often do. Ideally, they wouldn't. Ideally, you would cut off access for HVAC contractors and put them on their own subnet and um, make sure that they have no crossover communication with the normal production environment. But who knows? You know, network administrators are not all as diligent as they should be. And I've seen it. I've seen instances where uh, contractors had access to systems that they shouldn't. And even though these were good, upstanding people, I've raised red flags to people that say, hey, hey, don't do it this way. You're putting your entire system in danger. Even though you trust these guys, who knows who's going to get hired by them in the future, even though they do... Who knows who's going to get hired by them in the future? Maybe they, you know, they, I know they do background checks. Maybe they do high-quality background checks, but it makes so much more sense to simplify it and cut off your network, cut off your Active Directory uh, credentials so that uh, it's a simplified login structure. You know, it's... It's incredibly difficult to make these things work properly. So if I can raise one piece of advice, I'd like to tell you, watch out. Watch out putting all your eggs in one basket. Okay, that wraps it up for this week. Please join us next week and every week. Uh, we'll be discussing the latest news and topics in the data center world. We'll have exciting guests, and we will continue to have our finger on the pulse, even though we're trapped inside a fishbowl. Podcast today was brought to you by Agile Data Sites and Green Lane Design, and our music is by Chris Zabriskie. Thank you very much, and stay centered. <laughs>